0: morning glad to see so many of you back even after we announced last week i'd be doing this week too so it's good to see everybody um wanted to point out something uh everybody everybody take your bulletins and go to the back page there um we have something to truly be thankful for uh, to god Uh, last week we talked about gratitude to god for other people and i want to um I want you to go to the bottom of the back page there, and I want you to see that our giving is exceeding our ministry costs. And we, we as a church are, are in the black, and uh, that that happened through all of you being really sacrificial with your giving. So for the church, we shall thank one another for continuing to give. Um, but this is a real answer to prayer, and this is God really working in our church and continuing to provide for us. So, thank you all for your giving, and uh, let's be encouraged um, that we are all in this together, and we're all giving and wanting to see the gospel of God move forth in our church and in our community, and, and you know, part of that is, is supporting it uh, with financial stuff. So, thank you all, and let's all be encouraged by that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Mm, right. um, if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Psalm 24? Um, no, I did not misspeak. We're going to be in Psalm 24, not 23 today. Um, Rick told me I might confuse people when we said 24, uh, but we are going to look at who God is today uh, through this psalm. And 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 life oftentimes is is very difficult. Friendships are often difficult. Um, having having enough to pay the bills can be hugely difficult. And in the midst of that, in the midst of all that confusion and struggle, one of the things that I found is that we need to focus on who God is and how great and powerful and awesome he is. And so this morning, I want to look at Psalm 24 because I think it really gets at that. Who is God? Okay, who is the God of the Bible? How does that affect my life, what the Bible says about him? And I want us to see this morning that our God is described in here as the king of glory. And and I want us to see how a very strong, a very large view of God can help us in, in our everyday lives. So, let me start. I just want to start reading here. Um, first, we're going to see that God is the creator. Okay? And this is in verses 1 and 2. Let me read verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the sea and established it upon the waters. Now, one of the first things we learn about God in the book of Genesis is that he's the creator God. And this is how this psalm starts out. Speaking about how God created all things. Now, the first thing I want us to see is that it says the earth is the Lord's. And what's important about that, sometimes details like this report, but the word Lord there shows that this is the God of the Bible, okay? It doesn't say the earth is God's, and because in other cultures, that could be taken to mean their God, okay? So if I was a Canaanite or an Egyptian, and if I read the earth is God's, I could say, yeah, my God, okay? But when it says the earth is the Lord's, that is referring especially to the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, okay? It's not these other gods. It's not me, but it's God's. The earth is God's. Okay, and because he has created all things, everything is his. Okay, there's a, a Dutch guy named Abraham Kuyper, and he once says, every square inch of the world belongs to God. And the way that the psalmist says it here is that everything in it, The world and all who live in it. So everything that is on the world, okay, sort of like inanimate objects, but also every living thing in the world, all who live in it. And by saying that, he shows that everything, nothing is either on the earth, it's neither on the earth or living in it. Okay, that covers everything. And so everything belongs to God because he created it, which includes you and I. And I think that's the thing that sometimes we forget, that we're included in all who live in it, okay? And so because God created everything, because God created each and every one of us, we need to treat him in a certain way. We need to see him as the almighty God of the universe and not see ourselves as the almighty God of the universe. But let's see why, why is everything God's? Okay, it says in verse 2: for he founded it upon the sea and established it on the waters. Now, back in the Old Testament, uh, when, when someone refers to the seas and the waters, that was seen as sort of a force of chaos. Okay, in, in a lot of ancient mythology, we see that the gods have to battle this sea monster, literally the sea, but is a monster. And that to bring order into the universe, they have to defeat this monster. This is in lots of mythology, especially Norse um, and Canaanite. If you wanna, if you wanna check it out, um, I have some books you can look at. But, um, but what it's saying here, it's what's saying here is that God brings order where there was chaos. That there is no power greater than Him in the whole world. Not even these powers of chaos that exist in the mind view back then. So what it's saying here is God owns everything because he alone is the creator. He alone is the most powerful force in the universe. And also that he is separate from creation. Again, if you were not an Israelite back in the time when the psalm was written, you would believe that the gods were a part of creation, that I would be made of the same stuff as the gods were, that the trees were made of the same stuff as the gods were. And so the gods, in a sense, were part of creation. But God is totally separate from creation. He is totally different. He's not like you or I. He's not like the trees. He's not like the ocean. He's not like the mountains. He created all of those things. And again, remember, these are the things that were worshipped Back in the time when this psalm was written, you would worship the sun, you would worship the river, you would worship the mountains. But God's saying, I am totally different from all those things, and all those things are under my power. And so what the psalmist is saying is that there's no other gods besides the God, the Lord, the God of Israel. He's number one. There's no one else who comes even close because he took chaos and made order. And sometimes when we go through hard times, when we go through struggles, we forget that God is the most powerful thing that ever has been or ever will be. That we don't serve a weakling of a God. Because no one else could create the world. God created the world. And our God, the God that we have a relationship with, is the God who controlled the chaos who brought everything into existence. And because of that, everything, even including ourselves, belongs to God. Next, I want us to see that God is the holy redeemer. This is verses 3 through 6. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. So we see part of who God is in that he is the creator God, the king of the universe. But we also see, first, that God is holy. And there's none holy like him. It says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? It's assuming that the answer is no one. Okay? When it says the hill of the Lord and then holy place there, that's a reference to Jerusalem, The city of Jerusalem is on a hill, okay? And then also the temple within the city of Jerusalem. So what he's saying there is who can come into God's presence? Who can come into the presence of the eternal, awesome God? The answer is, I don't know. I can't come into God's holy. I'm not holy. How can I come into the presence of a holy God? One thing that, that I want us to see out of this is first of all, to approach a holy God, you must do so His way. Okay? We see this throughout Scripture. This is why there was the sacrifices. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross. because God is holy and we are not, we must approach God His way. Now how do we do that? Who is the person who can be in the presence of the Lord? And we see the answer in verse 4 there. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Because God is holy, because God is holy and we are not, we need to come his way. And the person who can come into God's presence, according to verse 4 there is one who has clean hands and a pure heart. So what does it mean to have clean hands and a pure heart? Because we need them to come into God's presence. So we should probably think about how we get them because we want to be in God's glorious presence. I th- What I think that this means is that the clean hands refer to how we live our lives. So, this is a purity of living, that we live blameless lives. Okay, that we live according to God's commands, that we live in a way that brings glory to God. And then, the pure heart refers to total loyalty to God. That we worship only one god that we are loyal to one god now what i think is important here to realize is is order is the order of how this works together okay now to have clean hands we need a pure heart okay clean hands do not make a pure heart let me read what jesus said In Matthew 23, 27 to 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. When Jesus was talking with the Pharisees, they were trying to do everything right so that God would love them. And they felt that they could be made righteous by being righteous. They thought that they could be good enough so that God would say, dude, you guys are the best, you're in, okay? But Jesus is saying, look, you need a clean heart. You need a clean inside, okay? So, so how do we get that? Psalm 51.10 says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So the way to have a pure heart, which leads to clean hands, is through God giving us that pure heart. And it's important because too many people mix up the order. They say, well, if I just do whatever God wants... I'll earn my way into heaven. And that's just not possible because we need God to change our hearts in only a way that he can. Only God can clean our hearts. Only God can forgive those sins. And without a clean heart, we cannot have clean hands. We get this through belief in Christ, that through faith, God gives us a pure heart and then through that we get the clean hands. One way I've I've heard it explained is if you really believe something, if you truly believe something, it will change the way that you live. Okay? If you really believe that if you jump off a cliff onto rocks that you will die, you will not jump off a cliff into rocks and die. Okay, if you believe that you will magically float, you may jump off a cliff. Okay, but this is sort of a test. If we really believe something, it will actually change how we live. And so when God, through faith, gives us a pure heart, we are then able to have clean hands, and therefore, we are able to come into God's presence because he is holy. If we truly love God, then we change how we act. It starts with the heart. And the lie is, is that it starts with the hands. And if my hands are good enough, then I'll clean myself, and then God will love me. And it just doesn't work. We need God to come in, clean our hearts, so that we can then live lives that glorify and worship him. To help us understand further what this means, look at the end of verse 4. It says that we need clean hands and a pure heart, and then it says what we don't do. Okay, a lot of times, uh, when you are trying to explain something to someone else, you need to say what to do, and then what not to do. Okay, so... Um, be safe around the stove, don't touch a burning stove. Right? See, so say it positively, say what to do, and then you say what not to do. And the psalmist does the same thing here. So clean hands and a pure heart, and then he tells us what not to do. The end of verse 4 there, who does not lift up his soul to an idol, does not worship an idol, or swear by what is false. And and how I think that works together, why I think he uses the example of, of giving false testimony is because when we don't worship idol, we're worshiping truthfully. And when we don't lie, we live truthful lives. See how it ties in there? So we worship the true God and we speak true words with our mouth. So the overarching theme is living truthful lives. And it helps us understand that we need to worship truthfully and live truthfully. We need to live lives with integrity. And we need to worship truthfully by worshiping the only God that there is. Next, let's look at the person who comes the right way, what they will receive. When we come the right way to God, when we come by faith and receive a pure heart, and we live lives that are pure, we live the lives of clean hands, God has promises for those people. Verse 5, he will receive, the person who comes with clean hands and a pure heart will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. So the person who comes with a pure heart and clean hands receives blessing. Now, since God, I want, I want you to see the logic here. Follow the logic with me. Since God created all things and he owns all things, all things are his to give. And then, therefore, all good things come from him. So he created all things, which gives him ownership of all things. And because he owns all things, he can give things. So therefore, all good things come from him. You see how it works together? How it's all related about who God is. That he is creator and holy, and so all good things come from him. He cannot give a bad thing because he is holy, but he can give everything because he is the creator God of the universe. But he also promises vindication. And this, again, ties in. Follow the logic here. Since nothing is greater than God... Since he's the creator of all things, since he has subdued the forces of chaos and brought order where there was none, since he is more powerful than anything, he is able to bring justice. And since he is holy, he can bring perfect justice. Do you see how we just, we need a huge view of who God is? We do not serve a weakling God. Okay? Okay. We serve the holy creator of the universe. And because of that, we can trust him in all circumstances because no circumstance is greater than him. And we can trust him to be good in those circumstances because no one is holy like him. This is the God we serve. And too often, we create God in our image, which is a God who fails, which is a God who does not live up to our standards. Okay? But really, we need to be living up to God's standards. (laughs) And we need to be relying on the king of the universe who is good. Unlike trusting ourselves, who, who often fail and are not good. We are not holy like God is, but God is holy so we can trust him. So Who are the people who get these benefits? Who are the people who get the clean hands and the pure heart? Verse 6. Such is the generation or group of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. How do we get pure hearts and clean hands? By seeking after God. Now, when it says seeking after God... It's not like we're playing a giant cosmic game of hide-and-seek and and we just need to find him somewhere. He's hiding, hiding in some mountain somewhere. No, but seeking after God is desiring after God. That we, we look for God, that we seek him out, that we find him, we find him in his word, in his creation. And that the only qualification is seeking him in faith that again it's not us cleaning up our own hearts it's seeking after god receiving his grace by faith and therefore receiving clean hands and a pure heart and then out of that we show our gratitude by living the holy lives again order is important we come by god come to come to god in faith he purifies our hearts, and then out of that gratitude, we live holy lives. Throughout the Bible, God's people, God's messengers, come with the same message repent and turn back to God. Come back to God and find forgiveness. And that's what the psalmist is saying here seek after God for forgiveness find forgiveness and a pure heart in him he is the only one who can grant that forgiveness last thing i want to say about these verses and this is where the redeemer part comes in is god is referred to as the god of jacob now what that is supposed to do is that is supposed to remind us of the covenant of the promise that god had with abraham, isaac and jacob of God's promise to be their God and to save them by faith. We're reminded that 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 is what saved them, that faith saved them. We read this in Hebrews and in Romans, how these great people of the Old Testament were not saved because they were so great, but because they came to God in faith. And that God chose them to be his people, not because of how good they were, but because of how good God is one of my favorite passages in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, he swore swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you, From the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Again, we see that we do not earn God's love, that God's love is a free gift received by faith. And that is the way to enter into God's presence. By accepting God's grace. By accepting our need for a savior. When we accept God's grace, he purifies our hearts and then empowers us to live lives of clean hands. And then that allows us to be in God's holy, awesome presence. So what does this mean? What does this mean for our lives? Well, one, it's telling us to stop and believe in God, accept his grace. That we need to make a decision about what to do with God's grace. Are we going to reject it or accept it by faith? Because God's grace through faith is the only way to come into God's presence. The only way to be reunited with him now and in heaven for eternity is through faith by his grace. And because he is the mighty king, the awesome, all-powerful God, he can save us. We are not God. We cannot save ourselves. We are not powerful enough, but God is. And we can trust because God is holy, so when he makes promises, we know that they will stand. We know that when he says he will do something, he will do it because he is holy. And we know that he he can back it up because he is the greatest power in this universe. God is trustworthy. His promises are trustworthy because he is holy in the creator. Lastly, I want us to see that God is a warrior. God is a warrior who fights for his people. There actually have been books written on the idea of God as a warrior. Um, it, It is such a prevalent theme in your Bible that you can write entire books on it. And it, it is so interesting because again and again, God is compared to a warrior who fights on behalf of his people. I would encourage you guys uh, to, to look up, just, to just see all of these passages. Because we forget so much that God is on our side. And as Romans 8 said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we forget that the all-powerful God of the universe is the one who fights for us. Again, it's not some weak God. It is not some person who's just slightly above us humans. But it is the creator God of the universe who fights on our behalf. Verses 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. One of the reasons, um, as as a quick aside, one of the reasons I love uh, reading the Psalms and preaching the Psalm is that Uh, at least for me, it it helps me connect with the more emotional side of our faith. That there are things that we must believe, truths that we must believe. But there is also that emotional aspect. And in the poetry of the Psalms, um, at least for me, it helps me to understand my emotional response to God. And that just as we sing, uh, on Sunday mornings, that that many of these psalms were used as songs by by the Israelites. And in that way, the word pictures and, and the poetry helps us connect with God on that other level. And so I just wanted to say that as a brief aside. So that's why normally when I'm up here, we're doing psalms. But back to the text. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up you ancient doors. The picture here is of a king coming back from battle or from war, and he's the winning king. And so when he comes back, there's a huge party in the city. Okay, there's parades, you know, and there's people waving stuff, maybe some flags, I don't know. But the picture is, is God as the victorious king. Now, when it talks about the gates and the doors, um, that's probably probably a reference to the people living in the city. Okay, it's talking about the city itself and like the buildings, um, but it's more likely that that's really a reference to the people inside it. Uh, Matthew 21.10 says this, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Um, so we see there it's not actually like, the city of Jerusalem started like quaking, but the people inside were stirred up. They were excited, and notice they asked, "Who is this?" Sort of sounds a little similar to "Who is this King of Glory?" I don't know. I don't know. Just saying. Um, but but again, the picture is of the triumphant parade of the King coming back victorious over his enemies, and the people going nuts. But it's not just any king that's coming back to his city. The king of glory. A king characterized by glory and awesomeness. A king different from any other king that we ever have known or will know. Again, the picture is not of a defeated, weak king, but a powerful, victorious king. This is our king. How is he described? He's described, first of all, again, as the Lord. Again, that points to not just any God, but the God of the Bible. And that's so important. Okay? That our God, the God who is in relationship with us, is this king of glory. He's strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. Again, you see how this king metaphor is. Is, 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 is a king who fights, a king who fights for us. And then the Lord Almighty uh, could be translated Lord of hosts, so Lord of the armies, that he is almighty because he has a giant army behind him. Okay, this is, if you're wondering, in Mighty Fortress, where it says Lord Sabaoth, and everybody thinks it should say Sabbath, but it's Sabaoth, meaning Lord of hosts, So just like in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, we see the triumph of God's power in the same way we see it here, that he is the conquering king leading his armies to victory. Now, I don't know about you, but this king seems to be a powerful king, seems to be a little victorious now and then, but how often do we really live this out in our lives? How often do we rely on the fact that our God is the creator God, holy king, warrior? And that he is a warrior on our behalf. One one quick application is that God fights for his people. God fights on behalf of his people. And too often, our view of God is that he is the holy God waiting to strike us with a lightning bolt whenever we screw up. Okay, that he is a judge sitting up in heaven and saying, ooh, Jim, shouldn't have made that decision. Lightning bolt. Okay? But no, God fights for us. And while, yes, God is a holy judge to whom we all have to answer, okay but too often we are scared that somehow we'll make a wrong decision and screw up God's plan and then he's going to throw a lightning bolt at us okay but when sin is not involved okay when sin is not involved God has given us wisdom to make good choices okay but so often we get so scared that we just don't do anything. And I think part of that is is just a misunderstanding of who God is. So again, when sin is not involved, so barring that, but when we are faced with a decision, we can trust that we are not going to screw up God's plan for our life. And so when sin is not involved, we can be free to choose what we think is the best thing. There's actually a book out that that I need to read, but the title pretty much says it all. It's Just Do Something. And it's talking about understanding the will of God and how, especially, my generation and younger has become so scared about screwing up God's will for their life. And part of that is understanding that God fights for us and not against us. Part of that is understanding when sin is not involved, God gives us wisdom to make those decisions and so we can just make them. And we don't have to be paralyzed by fear because our God is in control of the universe. We don't have to live in fear because our God is the great holy king. And so we get paralyzed, we become afraid when we forget who God really is. If Jesus is just your best friend like we learned in Sunday school, if he's just that, that's not the whole picture. Jesus is our friend. Jesus is our savior. But he's also the mighty king. And so we don't have to live in fear. Again, Romans 8:31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Our God is the same mighty king of glory. Couple points of application as we close here. First of all, as creator God, God deserves our worship. Only one God is the creator of all things. And so there's only one God who deserves worship, and that is our God. Second, we need to come to God with pure hands and clean hearts. That we come to him by faith so that he purifies our hearts, and then we live lives that glorify him every day. God fights for us. God is on our side. God will protect us. There is nothing that can defeat God. So, if God is on our side, we win. God is in control even in the tough times. That even when it seems like God is not there, He is there. And He is still the King of the universe. because he is in control god has the power to change god has the power to change our circumstances to change our hearts to change the hearts of others too often we think that it's totally up to us okay I, this was one of the one of the most profound things i've seen in a long time and it, it may sound really simple but last year when um, Darcy and I and Joan Karen went on a uh, pastoral retreat of Wisconsin um, great time of being refreshed and all that. There was a little um, sign next to the bed where it said, "God, I'm leaving the church in your hands and I'm going to bed <laughs> and and honestly I it helps me sleep at night. That, and, and I know, and I, I mean, I can't really speak for Joe, but I sort of will here. I know it helps him sleep at night. That what God does is not just about what we can do, but it's about what he can do. And we can sleep easy knowing that God is in control. We can do our best. We can do what God has commanded us to do and then go to bed and get the rest that he wants us to have. Our God is in control of this whole universe. And too often we forget that. Next I want us to see that God uses his kingliness and his power, not as a smiting judge, but as the God who saves. God in all his power decided that he would send his son to die on a cross for our sins and that through faith we could receive that forgiveness and come back into a relationship with him. God did not need to do that. Because God has so much love for us, he wanted to do that. And that's an amazing show of power. That he sent his own son to die on our behalf. That he loved us that much that he would have his own son die. That the innocent would be killed for the guilty. And that's how God uses his power. So my last question is, what are you going to do with the king of glory? How Is the fact that God is the king of glory, that he is the creator, that he is a holy God, that he is a warrior for us. How is that going to change your life? Maybe with God being creator and owning everything, maybe you need to think about if you really believe that God really does own everything on earth, including your own stuff. God owns your stuff. It's his. It's not yours. He gave it to you. It's his. So maybe you need to think about that. Maybe you need to decide to accept God's grace by faith. That by faith, we accept him purifying our hearts and then living, living out that pure heart with clean hands, with holy lives that worship God in all that we do. And maybe you need to sleep better at night. Maybe you need to trust that God is a mighty warrior who fights for you. So it's okay to go to bed and that God is in control. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that shows us who you are. That shows us that you are a great and awesome God. That you are the king of the universe. That you are the holy God who made a way of salvation by grace through faith. And that you are on our side. That you are the mighty king in battle. And that we do not have to live lives of fear. Because we know that you are God and you are in control. God, help us to live out these beliefs in our lives. Help us in our unbelief. Help our faith to grow more and more every day. Praise in your name. Amen.